It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast originally aired in May 2013. This is the Nature Pastcast, each month raiding nature's archive and looking at key moments in science. In this show, we're exploring a paper published in the 1980s. And now, ozone in the news. Recently, scientists discovered a weak spot in the ozone layer over Antarctica. Satellite observations have confirmed a progressive deterioration in the Earth's protective ozone layer above Antarctica, according to scientists who analyze Nature, International Weekly Journal of Science, 16th May, 1985. Letters to Nature, page 207. Large losses of total ozone in Antarctica. The paper really changed the way people look at the environment. It provided an image of nearly global environmental damage that people could see. All of a sudden, you look at it differently. Wow, we really can affect the planet as a whole. J.C. Farman, B.G. Gardiner, and J.D. Shanklin, British Antarctic Survey, Cambridge, UK. What we discovered at our Antarctic station was quite curious. It seemed that each Antarctic spring, which for the Antarctic is September, October, ozone levels were dropping. I'm Jonathan Shanklin, and I was one of the team of scientists that discovered the Antarctic ozone hole. Concerns were raised really in the 1960s and 70s that substances that we were manufacturing, in particular chlorofluorocarbons, the CFCs, might put chlorine high into the atmosphere where it could then photocatalytically interact with the ozone and destroy ozone. Ozone is an invisible upper atmospheric gas that protects all forms of life on Earth from most of the sun's damaging radiation. Radiation that can cause skin cancer, eye damage, and suppression of the immune system. The harvesting of fish and plant life are also affected. A vast amount of aquatic life...
has its beginnings in the When we were working up to publishing our paper, concerns have been expressed that these CFCs might destroy the ozone layer, that exhaust gases from Concorde might destroy the ozone layer. And the general thoughts were that any destruction would probably take place at high altitude in the tropics. My name is Richard Stolarski, and I'm a research scientist who's worked on ozone for many years. I'm now at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. We were looking for at most a few percent change in ozone, and we weren't necessarily looking in Antarctica. What they found in that paper was during the springtime a 40% or more decline and that that 40% only 10 years earlier was not there. So, so this happened very rapidly. So basically it was more than an order of magnitude greater than we expected. My name is Eric Conway. I am the historian at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. So when the British Antarctic Survey paper is published in 1985, um, a lot of people are, are rather shocked because during the early 1980s, they weren't sure whether there was evidence of, of depletion. Um, and that's because it's a difficult question to answer. There is a great deal of variation in the density of, of stratospheric ozone. It varies by season. It varies by latitude. So there were claims of depletion, but they weren't widely accepted yet. The fluorocarbon ozone theory was a theory. It's just a theory. We can't see it happening. Boom. Look at it. There it is. Total ozone has been measured at the British Antarctic Survey stations, Argentine Islands, and Halley Bay since 1957. Whatever the absolute error of the recent values may be, the annual variation of total ozone at Halley Bay has undergone a dramatic change. Boom. Look at it. There it is. One of the tasks that I had when I first joined the survey was to process the missing data. We had a, a period of about 10 years where the data hadn't been reduced. And doing it manually was quite time-consuming. Computers were just coming in. I was given the task of writing the programs, supervising the digitization of the data, and processing it. Um, I started at the present and was going to work back. And... My colleagues really didn't believe that this was significant. They thought, well, just because you've got it one year doesn't count. Um, so I eventually worked up all the missing years and was able to show it was systematic. And if you've got something systematic, there has to be something real going on. I think I was probably the little thing in the background that, that, that made the difference. And it was really a, a little voice for me being quite persistent that, look, you've got to do something about this, um, that finally sort of drove them to write, we'd better write it up and better go to nature because I think they had a better grasp of what a fundamental discovery this was than, than I did.
Many scientists told me that, in fact, they trusted the British Antarctic Survey people. In other words, they knew them to be good and rigorous scientists. So the initial questioning of those scientists was, well, well, how could they get such results? Because what they had found was ozone concentrations are far lower than anyone had ever seen on Earth. Richard Stolarski. I was with NASA for 35 years. And I had just come off of a stint as a low-level manager and was getting back into doing some real science. And we had people who had been taking satellite data of ozone. At the time, the amount of data was so massive, it was overwhelming and very difficult to deal with. You had to learn how to find the right nine-track tape in a room full of tapes. And it's really ironic to look at it today because the satellite was taking about five gigabytes of data per year. And at that time, when you said that, people were overwhelmingly impressed. And now I think a lot of people probably run that through their uh, smartphone every month. But at the time, it was an overwhelming amount of data. The Goddard team was scooped and they knew it. They um, went back to their own data and tried to figure out why this ozone hole wasn't apparent. And it turned out that it was. Well, the Goddard folks had set quality control software to look at the data automatically as it came back from the satellite and mark as potentially bad data anything that showed levels below a, a certain amount. And these levels, the prediction Antarctic surveys, were below that amount. So when the Goddard folks mapped all these flags of potentially bad data, they were all over the Antarctic, exactly where the British Antarctic Survey said it should be. So they ultimately wound up corroborating the British Antarctic Survey story and getting a bit of egg on their faces, too. It's being called an unprecedented display of international cooperation to protect the world's environment. The Montreal Protocol, signed today, aims at stopping the deterioration of the ozone layer in the atmosphere. That's the layer which shields us from damaging ultraviolet radiation from the sun. But there's a lot of work ahead before... So after the discovery of the 1985 ozone hole, there was already scheduled a set of negotiations over chlorofluorocarbons um, to reduce, but not ban, the production of chlorofluorocarbons. And what the discovery of the ozone hole does is demonstrate that there really is a problem and probably helped accelerate the negotiations that were already ongoing. The Montreal Protocol, as it's initially written, was a 50% reduction in production of chlorofluorocarbons. They were not a ban. The ban actually took a number of more years to negotiate and became possible as more evidence that chlorofluorocarbons were actually responsible for the ozone hole was developed by the scientific research that was going on. They have discovered a trend. Each spring over Antarctica, a hole in the ozone develops. Satellite photos show that a hole opens for a few months during Antarctica's springtime. It was very clear when we first looked at the data that we've got an ozone decline. And I think that's probably the term we use, a decline in ozone above the Antarctic. And it wasn't really until you got the satellite images 
you could say, oh, there's a hole there. And yeah, with nice colored graphics, it hits you in the face. It is not clear to me to this day who coined the term ozone hole and when and where it was done. Some complained we shouldn't use that term, but once you let that term out of the bag, there was no going back. It, it became the ozone hole, and it seems to me that it certainly made it easier to reach a greater part of the public by having a simple keyword that you can describe it by. The ozone hole was, was mentioned in newspapers and on TV quite commonly during the 1980s because the interest of environmental organizations kept it on the public radar, I think. Um, you know, the ozone hole actually still appears every year and it has completely disappeared from public conversation. Uh, we have judged it a solved problem even though we don't actually – scientists don't actually expect it to go away for – another 80 to 100 years. I really think that the the whole episode of the ozone hole discovery and all the subsequent things that happened in terms of explaining it, mapping it, etc., are a huge success story for uh, the science of understanding the stratosphere. We were able in a very short time to put together a lot of pieces and to draw a much clearer picture of how this part of the Earth's system works and what might affect it and what might not affect it. So the legacy of the ozone hole story was that a effective environmental action can be taken at the international level to resolve global environmental problems. A great many people compare the ozone depletion problem and the climate change problem. You have to remember that the ozone hole story was sort of simple and straightforward and that CFCs had not been part of our economy for that long and they were not the same as carbon dioxide which is coming from our basic energy generation so that the regulations that limited the CFCs could be handled by the economy quite easily. So while there are lessons, I think with carbon dioxide, we're dealing with a much more difficult problem that goes way beyond the parameters that were involved in the ozone hole. It's been quite fascinating going back, particularly along the Antarctic Peninsula, on various trips. When I first went to Rothera, we used to get drinking water in the summer from a melt pool that formed on a patch of ice nearby. The last time I was at Rothera, we couldn't do that because the ice level had dropped so much that the water just spilled out into the sea. And I've seen the glaciers retreating slowly, admittedly, but I can see that they're going back. And yes... Change is very obvious along the Antarctic Peninsula. The ozone hole story clearly shows that if we have the will to do things, we can succeed. Climate change, the will isn't there yet. And I fear it will take a disaster or two before that will appears. But once it does, we have the 
knowledge and technology to do something about it. Nature, published by Macmillan Journals Limited, 4 Little Essex Street, London WC2R 3LF, 16th May 1985. You've been listening to the Nature Pastcast, produced by Charlotte Stoddart and with contributions from Jonathan Shanklin, Richard Stolarski, and historian Eric Conway. Next month, it's back to the 1870s and the starring role of the gorilla in the quest to understand man's place. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. In nature.